Despite their differences in ideologies, both the United States and the Soviet Union felt that it was imperative to protect themselves and other like-minded nations from the influence of one another. As a result, this search for security led to the formation of new military alliances, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO for short, and the Warsaw Pact. In April 1949, the United States and Canada joined forces with Britain, France, Italy, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, Luxembourg, Portugal, Iceland, and the Netherlands, with Turkey, Greece, and West Germany coming in several years later. They all agreed to support one another and provide mutual help in the event that any one of them was attacked, especially by the Soviets. Unwilling to be left out, the Soviet Union formed the Warsaw Pact in response. In 1955, the Soviet Union joined with Romania, Poland, Hungary, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Albania to create the Warsaw Pact. Somehow, Europe now found itself once again divided into hostile alliance systems, just as it had been prior to the outbreak of World War I. Alliances weren't the only things to progress the Cold War further. By the mid-1950s, the United States and Soviet Union became involved in an ever-growing arms race. Both countries built up their armies and bulked up the size of their weapons arsenals. An even more frightening element in all of this was the threat of nuclear weapons. Both countries worked hard to build nuclear weapons that were not only more destructive and deadly, but also farther reaching, meaning that armies would have the ability to launch nuclear weapons that could hit targets further away. As a result, the United States did its best to quell the fears of its citizens. Various government agencies created public safety initiatives to help people feel safer. Programs such as Duck and Cover taught children of all ages about the dangers of nuclear attacks and what to do if one should occur. Families built bomb shelters and stocked up on canned goods in case the inevitable Soviet attack came and they were forced to hunker down. Despite the fact that the United States was the first major power to create and use a nuclear weapon, the Soviet Union was doing its best to make up for lost time. They set off their first atomic bomb in 1949, and by the late 1950s, both powers had intercontinental ballistic missiles, giving them the ability to send nuclear weapons anywhere in the world. Eventually, both powers adopted a policy more towards deterrence. Each realized that their enemy had their own source of nuclear weapons, and any attack on them could, and probably would, result in a nuclear strike back. Oddly enough, the very existence of these weapons was the deterring factor in using them. But things took an even more terrifying turn when the arms race suddenly became a space race. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, the first human-made space satellite to orbit the Earth. The American public grew afraid of the repercussions of these Soviet developments, and many wondered what else the Soviets would do in space to make their power more obvious. The competition for power had now irrevocably changed, with millions of lives potentially on the line. Things weren't all that great for the Soviet Union, however. Even though the Soviets were now in the lead for space domination, their venture in creating a communist East Germany wasn't going according to plan. West Berlin had become the western island of prosperity, while East Berlin remained a relatively poverty-stricken city, similar to the majority of East Germany. As a result, millions of East Germans had managed to escape communist East Germany by way of West Berlin. Nikita Khrushchev, the new leader of the Soviet Union in 1955, wanted to stop the flow of refugees leaving East Germany. 
As you can imagine, it didn't give the Soviet Union or communism great PR. Khrushchev wanted to solve the problem of West Berlin in order to use the newfound power Sputnik had brought the Soviets. He needed a way to stop the movements of so many East Germans. So just after midnight on August 3rd, 1961, the East German government began constructing a wall that separated East and West Berlin. Eventually, the simple barrier would morph into a concrete block wall that towered 15 feet high and was topped with barbed wire. Hundreds of towers would line the wall, each holding their own manned machine guns. It would eventually grow to encompass the entirety of West Berlin for the entire 90-mile circumference. The Berlin Wall would remain up until November of 1991, all the while acting as a powerful, striking, frightening symbol of the division between the United States and the Soviet Union. Europe wasn't the only place where these divisions became apparent. New military alliances started to spread to the rest of the world as well, specifically in Asia. Regardless of the threat of nuclear war, the United States and Soviet Union never went to war directly with one another. Instead, they engaged in a series of proxy wars. Both nations were willing and able to support opposing sides in local wars in the ongoing struggle between their two worldviews. Besides NATO, the United States built alliances with other parts of the world, such as Pakistan, Australia, and New Zealand, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. The goal was to prevent Soviet expansion into parts of Asia and the Middle East. The Soviet Union did the same, establishing their own alliances with Asian and Middle Eastern nations. Korea became one of the first stages where this conflict would play out. Japan had controlled Korea until 1945, and after World War II ended, the Soviet Union and United States agreed to split the country into two zones, along the 38th parallel, which is approximately a halfway point of the territory. The initial plan was to hold elections and reunify the country, but as you can guess, the American-Soviet relationship only grew worse. Two separate governments emerged, communist in the North and anti-communist in the South. By June 1950, communist North Korean troops invaded South Korea. President Truman saw this as another example of communist expansion and gained the approval of the United Nations to send U.S. troops to hold back and repel the invaders. Several other countries sent troops in as well, and in October 1950, thousands of UN soldiers marched across the 38th parallel with the goal of unifying the fractured Korea. Alarmed at this invasion, the Chinese Communist government, with the support of the Soviet Union, responded by sending hundreds of thousands of troops into North Korea, pushing UN forces back across the 38th parallel. The fighting continued for three years, and the course of the war changed frequently. Despite the thousands of lives lost, however, there was no final victory. Instead, an armistice was signed in 1953, and the 38th parallel became, and still is, the boundary line between North and South Korea. For many Americans, the policy of containment had succeeded in Korea, as it had earlier in Europe. But the Korean War also confirmed the fears of communist expansion in general. The U.S. was determined now more than ever to contain Soviet power. In the mid-1950s, during Eisenhower's presidency, the U.S. adopted a new policy of massive retaliation. Eisenhower declared that any Soviet attack would be met with full use of American nuclear bombs. The Korean War also solidified and extended many military alliances, as the U.S. declared that the freedoms of those in Asia were just as important as America's own citizens. 
citizens, this government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. During the administration of John F. Kennedy in the 1960s, the Cold War reached a frightening level of epic proportions. In 1959, a left-wing revolutionary overthrew the Cuban dictator and set up a Soviet-supported totalitarian regime. His name was Fidel Castro. He and the socialist regime that was backed by the Soviets were both considered to be a direct threat to the safety of the United States and its citizens. President Kennedy was hesitant to move directly against Castro in fear of Soviet retaliation by moving against West Berlin. The fear of the unknown caused Kennedy to consider every and any alternative possible. Finally, he approved the CIA's plan to help exiled Cuban fighters invade Cuba at the Bay of Pigs in an effort to cause a revolt against Castro. The invasion began on April 16, 1961, and was a complete disaster. By Wednesday of that week, the exiled fighters had begun surrendering. 114 people died, while the rest were captured by Castro's troops. Following the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Soviet Union sent advisors to Cuba, and in 1962, Khrushchev started to place nuclear missiles in the country in order to counteract the U.S. nuclear weapons that they had placed in Turkey. His argument that, while Cuba was 90 miles off the coast of the U.S., Turkey was Russia's direct neighbor. The U.S. was not willing to allow any nuclear weapons within such a close striking distance. The situation became even more tense when in October of 1962, Kennedy discovered that there were Soviet ships carrying missiles heading directly for Cuba. Kennedy responded by blockading the ships, giving each country time to find a peaceful solution. For 13 days, the United States, and really the entire world, watched with bated breath to see how the two superpowers would act. Finally, after some of the most tense days in recent history, Khrushchev agreed to turn the Soviet fleet around if Kennedy promised not to invade Cuba under any circumstances. This event, known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, was one of the pinnacle moments in the Cold War, and not in a good way. It was clear that the world had become frighteningly close to nuclear war. But with this threat came significant changes in the communication between the superpowers. In 1963, a hotline communication system was installed, connecting Moscow and Washington, D.C. The Soviet Union and the United States could now communicate directly in times of crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis was not the last of the conflicts between the Soviet Union and the United States. Both superpowers would still engage in proxy conflicts in Vietnam and parts of the Middle East. 
And though there was never any direct fighting between Soviet soldiers and American soldiers, it did not lessen the impacts this rivalry had on the world around them. The Cold War ultimately left its mark on the world in a multitude of ways, some scars running deeper than others, but many of which that can still be seen today. Thanks for listening to Miss Fitzgerald's World History Podcast. If you have any questions, remember to reach out via email, Google Hangout, or you can always leave a comment somewhere in Google Classroom. It'll turn up for me eventually. Remember to stay safe, stay healthy, eat a vegetable, take a nap, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you soon.